You're listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to follow us online, please go to gracecc.net. That's gracecc.net. And thanks for joining us. Let me lead us in prayer. God, we thank you that you are able, that those very words we just sang, they're true, they're reality. And you are the God who is able to make your word come alive to us. No one wants us to see you, to know you, to hear you, to experience you more than you do. So we ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, by your power working in our lives, you would not only make your word this morning relevant to us, but that you would use it to change us, to make us into the people you have called us to be, to make us into the community you have called us to be. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much, Sarah and team. This was wonderful. And we're going to get to do more music worship as we continue on in our service time here this morning. So once again, dads, happy Father's Day. We are so thankful for all of you. And we hope this is truly a special day for you. My name is Jay. For those of you who may be newer to our church family, um, I'm the lead pastor here. And on behalf of our entire church family, again, we're so glad that you have chosen to worship with us here this morning. And I'm very much aware that whenever we celebrate a holiday like Mother's Day or Father's Day, that it's oftentimes a bittersweet experience. Of course, we're thankful for our dads, but for some of us, there's pain in that relationship for whatever reason. And in many cases, there's loss in that relationship as well. For me personally, this is the very first Father's Day in my life that I am celebrating without my dad. My dad went home to be with the Lord earlier this year, and I am painfully aware that he is missing from my life right now. But I know where he is, and I know who he's with. But it still hurts to not have him here on this day. And one of the many things that I so appreciated about my dad is my dad was a constant presence in my life. Um, The last 20 years of my life, um, he lived in the area, so he was very accessible and very available to, to me and my family, and we so appreciated that. On the screen in front of you, you see some pictures of just some of the things that he used to do to bless us and to be a presence in our lives. Jamie and I have always purchased houses that have needed a lot of work because that's what we could afford. So we've always bought these houses knowing that they're projects and knowing that they're going to need a lot of remodeling, a lot of work. And a lot of that stuff I did not know how to do. But my dad, who was a construction superintendent, knew how to do all of it. And so to know that he was in my corner, to know that my dad was not only available but accessible to me and willing to help and wanting to bless me gave me a tremendous amount of courage. I was willing to tackle really any challenge that came with remodeling a house or doing a project because I knew at the end of the day, my dad would be there if not to help me, to at least coach me and to stand in my corner and to help me so that I could get what I needed to get done. And because of that, with him gone now, I I miss my dad and I feel his absence. But in this story that we've been following in the book of Numbers, the Israelite people's father, their heavenly father, 
was present with them. In fact, he was always with them. He was constantly helping them and was constantly in their corner, enabling them to do what he was asking them to do. And so now after several weeks of wandering in this desert, he has now brought them to the promised land. This is a land that he promised to their ancestors thousands of years before, and now he was about to deliver on that long-awaited, long-anticipated promise. The people had been freed from Egypt, freed from the slavery there, and now they were about to get a glimpse of the land that God had promised to him. And so the question really was hanging in the balance. Would God deliver on what he had promised? Was it truly going to be as good and as wonderful as he had said it was going to be? So they come to the border of the promised land. And this is where we pick up the story now in this first section as we focus on Numbers chapter 13. So let's read these opening verses together. The Lord said to Moses, send some men to explore the land of Canaan, the promised land, which I am giving to the Israelites. From each ancestral tribe, send one of its leaders. So at the Lord's command, Moses sent them out from the desert of Paran, and all of them were leaders of the Israelites. And I've highlighted leaders in this passage because there were 12 of them, one from each tribe of Israel. And since it is Father's Day and the spirit of Father's Day, how did these leaders do in leading the community and in leading their own families? Well, let's pick back up on the story and see what happens. So Moses now gives them instructions and he says, go through the Negev and on into the hill country. See what the land is like and whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled or fortified? How's the soil? Is it fertile or poor? Are there trees in it or not? Do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land. And now a little foreshadowing here. It was the first season for the first ripe grapes. So they went up and explored the land from the desert of Zin as far as Rehob toward Labo Hamath. They went up through the Negev and came to Hebron, where Ahiamen, Sheshai, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, lived. Hebron had been built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. Little frame of reference there. And when they reached the valley of Eshkol, they cut off a branch bearing a single cluster of grapes. Two of them carried it on a pole between them, along with some pomegranates and figs. The place was called the Valley of Cluster, or the Valley of Eshkol, because of the cluster of grapes the Israelites cut off there. Now I want you to just imagine with me for a minute as we enter this story, what was it like for them to bring back this fruit of the land? By way of example, I went to Safeway the other day. I bought my little bag of $8 grapes that I could hold with a couple fingers. These grapes were so big and it was such a massive cluster, it took two men to carry it on a pole back to the people. I mean, it's, it's remarkable. And we have to appreciate as well, they were exploring the land and spying it out for 40 days, which means they covered somewhere between 350 and 500 miles. They covered a lot of land real quickly. So this was quite a journey and quite an expedition. And now they bring these things back to demonstrate how incredible and how fertile the land is. 
So this is what the story goes on to say. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. And there they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. Hey, Moses and Aaron, here's the good news. Good news and bad news. But good news is, The land is everything God said it was going to be. It's fertile and it is fabulous. Now we have to appreciate, once again, as we enter this story, they've been wandering in the desert for weeks. It's arid, it's hot, it's ugly, it's desolate, it's lonely. And now they come to this incredible, fertile, fabulous land. This last week, I took uh, our daughter down to the U of O to bring back some of her stuff because it's the end of the school year and she'll be moving back into another house here in just a couple months when she starts school again. But as we were driving through the Willamette Valley, I was thinking about this passage and this description we just read and, and just realizing and appreciating how, incredible fertile, how incredibly fertile that, that land is. Do you realize that the Willamette Valley grows 75% of the world's grass seed? little freebie there for you. But all that being said, it's incredibly fertile. We drive through it all the time. I kind of take it for granted, to be honest with you, but I can't imagine what incredible power and beauty and majesty and promise this land held for these people who had been wandering in the desert all these weeks, possibly months. And so now let's go to the rest of the report, and this is kind of the bad news. But the people who live there are powerful and the cities are fortified and they're very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev, the Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country and the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. Folks, that's a lot of people. And there's great significance to some of these descriptions here. When it says the Anak were living there, that word literally means tall-necked or giant. And what they're saying is that there are big people who live in that land. There's, There's giants living there. Now, we don't know how big they were, but we've got some ideas Because if we cheat a little bit and we go to some other parts of the Old Testament, when the people eventually went into the promised land and did battle with some of the descendants of Anak, they were big, big people. Think David and Goliath. Goliath, in that story, he was a descendant of Anak. They they were strong, warrior-like, battle-hardened, big people. And this isn't hard really for us to imagine. You know, there was this time when we used to go to this thing called live in-person sporting events, like the NBA, like professional basketball. And if you've ever gone to a Blazer game and you've ever been courtside or just gone down on the floor, even the, the players who look little when you're up in the seats are huge when you get to the floor. It's not hard for us to imagine a race a tribe or really multiple tribes of of these giant people and that's who the spies see. Now this is very interesting because look how Caleb, one of the spies, responds. He says that the people were silenced and says, we should go up 
and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. We can do it. We should do it. We got to do it. Let's go do it. Caleb is ready to go right now. But now look what happens. But the men who had gone up with him said, we can't attack those people. They're stronger than we are. Okay, that's, that's valid. That's fair. They are stronger than they are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land that they had explored. Okay, here we go. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. What in the world is going on here? This just went from bad to worse in their report. The land devours the people living in it. Um, one question that comes to mind, if the land devours those who live in it, how come you came back? Really? And the Nephilim were there? Who in the world ever said anything about the Nephilim? And by the way, who in the world are the Nephilim? Well, what we do know of the Nephilim is they were a race, again, of, of huge people who were warlike and evil who lived prior to the flood of Noah. But they were wiped out by that flood. And who in the world ever said anything about the Nephilim living in the land? And yes, the descendants of Anak supposedly came from them, but what is going on here? And then we're like grasshoppers compared to these giants? Really? Because what they're really saying there is all we are are slaves who make bricks for the Egyptians. We're nothing. We're, we're nobody. Really? The last we checked, we thought you were the people of God. What is going on here? Something that is more contagious more dangerous, more insidious, more prevalent than almost anything else we'll ever experience. It's called fear. They are afraid. Are you afraid? Do you have reason in this day and age with what's going on in our culture, in our community, in our nation, in our world, to be afraid. Have you turned on the news lately? Have you opened an app on your phone? Have you looked at a news feed? Have you engaged in social media on any level? Have you actually picked up a newspaper? Whatever your source of news may be, if you have read the news, absorbed the news, there's plenty of reasons to be afraid. So what is the giant you're facing this morning? This week, I've had trouble sleeping. And for those of you who know me, that should be shocking to you because you know my story. I have the spiritual gift of sleep. When I go to sleep, when my head hits the pillow, I go to sleep. I figure I've got a job to do, and I do it, and I usually do it really well. In fact, my poor wife, when we were first married, Jamie quickly learned to not talk to me about anything when we, be, when we began to go to sleep because she claims I literally fall asleep within one to two seconds. I think it's like three. 
but she insists it's, it's one to two. I don't know. I'm not around. I'm asleep. But this is what I do know. I fall asleep and I stay asleep. I rarely lose a night of sleep and I've lost a lot of sleep this week because there are some things going on in my life right now that I am worried about. And if I'm honest with myself, there's some fear involved with that. So how should I deal with that? How do you deal with the fears or to use the language of this passage, the giants that you're up against right now? How should we deal with that? I mean, on one side of things, aren't there things we legitimately should be afraid of? Let's look at this passage in this story. Are the people in this story big? Yeah. Are the people who live in the land already, who Israel is going to have to fight in order to secure the land, are they more numerous than they are? Yeah, significantly so. The Jewish nation is a little fish in a big pond when it comes to what is ahead of them to go into this land. They are vastly outnumbered by the people before them. And again, if we want to cheat just a little bit and we draw from other parts of the Old Testament and we kind of skip ahead in the story, their cities are fortified. They have better technology than the Jewish people do. The odds are incredibly stacked against the Jewish people to go in and win this promised land. Are they right to fear those things? I think they are. Those are legitimate fears. So how do we deal with legitimate fear? Well, do we just minimize it? Diminish it? Deny it? Isn't that what faith is? No, my friends, that's not faith. That's fantasy. That's being out of touch with reality. As Gary Brashears helped us see last week, and as we mention frequently, as we talk about what Scripture teaches us, God never calls us or tells us to pretend that things are actually better than they are. By way of example, when Scripture tells us to be thankful in all things, it does not mean to be thankful for all things. It means to find thankfulness in whatever is, is going on. But it doesn't take bad things and call them good when we're given that command. Yes, there are things we legitimately should fear. Legitimate fear that we have to do business with. And we don't do business with it by denying it or minimizing it or pretending that it's not there. But there's also illegitimate fear that we have to do business with. Many times this is the what ifs that begin to cascade through our mind that begin to wake us up at night. These things that could happen and sometimes they're associated with trauma. I think in all fairness to the Jewish people, they see what's ahead of them. They see the obstacles. They see the odds that are stacked against them and their minds immediately go back to Egypt. And they're, they were traumatized by that, being enslaved for so many years. And these fears that, well, that can happen to us again. What if we lose these battles? What if they plunder our things? What if they take our women and children? What if we're enslaved once again? So if we're not to deny reality, if we're not to deny our fears, 
then how are we to face into them? You know, this morning I was reading through the book of Philippians, which is one of the books I love. I love all the books of the Bible, to be honest. My favorite book of the Bible is whatever we're all studying together on a Sunday morning, to be honest with you. I love God's word. But I'm reading Philippians, and I'm reading Philippians 4, and it says, do not be anxious about anything. And as I'm trying to process this with you and make sense out of all this and apply it practically to my life, I'm thinking, okay, how could God tell me not to be anxious about anything when there are legitimate things to be anxious about? And the answer is what precedes that verse. Do not be anxious about anything, but what comes right before that? The Lord is near. And my friends, that's the answer to our question. We don't need a new perspective on our problems. We need a new perspective on our God. Because at the end of the day, the size of our problems is relative to the size of our God. When you and I freak out and stress out and lose sleep over our fears, it reveals who our God really is and how big we really think he is. That's really the bottom line. How big is your God? How big is my God? How big was the Jewish people's God? The Israelites' God? Wasn't this the God who had promised to never leave them? Wasn't this the God who had over and over again demonstrated his miraculous power in their lives? What happened to all that? As they were looking at the land and then hearing this report and then processing it together. It's like they had spiritual amnesia. It's like they completely forgot not only who God was, but who they were. Grasshoppers? Really? Weren't they the people of God? Hadn't God promised this land to them? Hadn't God demonstrated his faithfulness and his trustworthiness over and over and over again to them? And it's like they forgot all that. My friends, We have to remember that identity matters. Who God is and who we are in him. That is absolutely fundamental to steering into our fears, to when we have to face into the odds, to when he calls us to trust and obey him and it makes absolutely no sense to do so. We have to remember who he is and who we are. So what is the antidote to spiritual amnesia? What is the answer to forgetfulness? It is what God instructs us and his people over and over and over again throughout his word, and it's this. Remember. Remember. So what do you do to remember the work of God, the promises of God, the fulfilled prayers that you've prayed in your life? You've seen this before. I showed it to you some sermons ago. This is a thankfulness journal that I keep. And you know why I do this? Because I tend to forget. I forget the prayers God's answered. I forget the promises he's kept. I forget the things he's done. I forget the work of his spirit in my lives, my life. And so I consistently, not every day, but consistently capture what he's done so that I can remember. Because my friends, sometimes I forget 
I forget how big my God really is. I forget how trustworthy my God really is. And sometimes I even forget who I am as his son, as one of his kids. And so as we invite the worship team back now, and as we prepare to respond to just some of the truth in this amazing passage we're looking at, we're going to be singing about our identity. Who does God say who we are? And as we do so, as we engage together, as we sing together now, please think about the identity statement that you are making as you sing this song or even as you listen to these words and let them sink in. Who does God say you are and who is your God? And then we'll come back and finish out the rest of the story together in Numbers 14. But let's worship together. Thank you, worship team. This is the God who joins us in the desert, walks with us through the desert. And that certainly is what he's doing with his people now. And now we come really to a defining moment in this story. The people have heard the report about the land. And now once again, a question hangs out there. And the question is this, what are they going to do? How are they going to respond to what they've heard? Well, we begin to answer that and see the answer to that rather as we dive into chapter 14 now. So this is how they respond to the report from the spies. That night, all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole assembly said to them, if only we had died in Egypt or in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. This is not a good scene. I highlighted a very key word in there for you and me, and it is grumbled. They are grumbling. You know, this sounds like a bad movie playing itself all over again. Do you remember the ground that we covered last week in Gary's excellent sermon? When we looked at how the people were responding to God providing for them, giving them what they needed, what did they do? They complained. They whined. And they wailed. And that's basically what they're doing again here. And here's the deal. Wailing and whining never leads to worship. It never goes there. Versus what Gary helped us see last week is that there's a difference between wailing and whining versus lament. Lamenting about something is is protesting. And that actually is a path to worship. But the people here aren't lamenting, they're pouting. And this is not headed a good direction. And that whole idea of lament, which if you're still wrestling with that, or if you didn't get a chance to hear Gary's sermon, please go back and listen to that sermon or watch that sermon rather from last week, or go watch it again. 
because that was such an excellent explanation of what lament is, because that does point us and lead us towards a right response to God of worship without denying or minimizing the problems that we're protesting about. But that's really at the heart of what lament is, is protest. And there's something about that that should resonate with us. I mean, in some ways, that's what's going on in our community and our culture right now, is a protest against injustice, against racial inequality. And a number of you have reached out to us and asked, so how do we do that in a godly way? What does it look like to wisely, biblically protest against injustice? to do something that, that's meaningful. Because as we've talked about in previous weeks, this really is our side of the street as Jesus followers. Wherever there's injustice, wherever there's evil, wherever there's wrong and we can do something about it in the name of Jesus Christ, we are to do that. That's exactly who we are supposed to be about because that's what God does. God fights against evil and someday he's gonna eradicate and destroy all evil. But until that day comes, we join him in that. So what does that look like now in this day and age? Well, the elders and I in the coming weeks are going to be developing a resource for you. We're going to be posting it as a video to Facebook and YouTube. And we're going to be laying a biblical foundation for what does it mean not just to lament, but to protest and to fight against injustice and to engage with what it means to be righteous and to live righteous for God in this current day and age with what's going on. And we'll give you some practical resources on how to do that and to equip you to do that. But where this story is about to go is, is going to be hard to see because here's the people on the cusp of taking possession of what God has promised to them for thousands of years and unfortunately it's going to go from bad to worse. It starts out with grumbling but, but look what happens here. Moses and Aaron respond to this. They're leaders. They fall face down in front of the whole Israelite assembly that was gathered there. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jehopadeth, who were among those who had explored the land, tear their clothes, which is an expression of grief. And they said to the entire Israelite assembly, the land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and he'll give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not be afraid of the people of the land because we will devour them. And isn't that interesting? The spies who gave the bad report came back and said, the land devours everyone who lives there. And now Joshua and Caleb are saying, the land's not gonna devour us. We're gonna devour the people in it because their protection is gone. The Lord is with us. Don't be afraid of them. But the whole assembly talked about stoning them. Now, stoning was something that happened under very, very specific, dire circumstances. You don't stone your leaders because you're unhappy with them. This is moving from grumbling to a revolt. And now God is going to intercede. The odds are turning real quickly against Moses and God's now going to step in and he says, how long will these people treat me with contempt? 
How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the signs I have performed among them? I will strike them down with a plague and destroy them, but I will make you into a nation greater and stronger than they. Okay, my friends, we know something now about pandemics and plagues, but we don't even have to be going through what we're experiencing in our world, in our community, in our city, in our lives right now to appreciate the significance of what God is saying here. God basically says, I'm going to wipe them all out. Mic drop. Done. And we can look at this as face value and say to ourselves, and people do, they will point to passages like this and say, well, how incredibly unfair and harsh and vengeful and vindictive. This is your God. He's a bloodthirsty God who likes to kill people, even his own people. But this isn't the end of the story. Let's, let's read on. Moses said to the Lord, well, then the Egyptians will hear about it. By your power, you brought these people up from among them and they will tell the inhabitants of the land about it. They've already heard that you, Lord, are with these people and that you, Lord, have been seen face to face. But the cloud stays over them and that you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. If you put all these people to death, leaving none alive, the nations who have heard this report about you will say, well, the Lord was not able to bring these people into the land. He promised them on oath, so he slaughtered them in the wilderness. Now may the Lord's strength be displayed just as you have declared the Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love, forgiving sin and rebellion. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for their sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. And that was a quote from Exodus 34, the most quoted verse in the Bible by the Bible. And in accordance with your great love, forgive the sin of these people, just as you have pardoned them from the time they left Egypt until now. So this is Moses changing God's mind? Or is there more to it than that? And I think that's absolutely the case. Yes, God's reputation does matter to him. He is the one true God. Yes, God's character does matter to him. Yes, God does keep his word and his promises. And just so we're on the same page, it's not like God forgot about all these realities. Oh, geez, Moses, I'm sure glad you reminded me of those things. I guess I really should do that. No, this is another example of our God being relationally responsive to his people. By way of example, let's think about prayer. Why do we pray to God? He's God. He's going to do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants, right? Well, yes and no. Yes, but at the same time, he's relationally responsive to us. We pray to God because he responds to us. He responds to his children. He wants to bless them. He wants to show them his goodness. He wants to show them his love. He is a loving father. So of course he's responsive to us and of course he's responsive to Moses. So consider what we're seeing here. Consider the grace of God that's already being put on display for us. Because as we look at this story as a whole, God doesn't owe these people anything. 
He owes them nothing. He doesn't have to listen to Moses. He chooses to listen to Moses. And now look at what he chooses to do. He shows them his incredible love and forgiveness. He says, I have forgiven them as you have asked. Nevertheless, as surely as I live and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of those who saw my glory and the signs I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, but who disobeyed me and tested me 10 times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their ancestors. Not one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. Did God have to forgive them? No, he didn't have to, but he chose to. And that's pretty remarkable because how many times have they wronged God? Well, verse 22 just told us, 10 times. 10 times from the point that he freed them from the Egyptians. And since we're talking about God's grace, which by the way, grace is God's unmerited, unearned love for the sake of right relationship with him as well as empowerment from him to trust and obey him. How has he shown grace to them? He frees them from slavery. He brings them to Mount Sinai. He invites them into intimate relationship with them. Covenants, binds himself, commits himself to them says that he will lead them to the promised land, provides for them in leading them to the promised land. It's everything he promised them. He delivers exactly on what he said he was going to do for them. Over and over again, he puts up with their complaining and their bickering and their grumbling and their envy and all the whining and complaining that we saw as a snapshot last week with the passage that Gary took us through. Grace after grace after grace after grace. When they didn't earn it, they didn't deserve it, and he didn't have to do it. Because what we have to realize is that God's grace always precedes his judgment. I challenge you to look at any act of judgment of God in the Bible, and you will see that there is a long pattern of grace and forgiveness and mercy and incredible patience that he extends long before an act of judgment ever happens. God is far more forgiving, far more patient, far more gracious than you and I certainly are. You ever been insulted 10 times in a row and then forgiven someone for that? That's a pretty big ask. And yet that's exactly what God has done for these people here. But there are consequences for their actions and for what they have done. Because it goes on to say that God is going to have them wander now in the desert for 40 years, one year for every day that those spies were seeing what could have been the people's, the promised land. Because you see, at the end of the day, this God wants to bless us. No one wants to bless us more than this God. That's his heart. That's what he's about. 
But we have this issue that pervades our very nature. It's called sin. It's this selfishness. It's this self-focus that we all have to do business with. And so many times we diminish that. We downplay it. We treat it like it's really not that big a deal. And it is a big deal. Because we don't have to live like that. God's grace is not a license for us to continue to sin. It is the escape from it. God forgives them when he doesn't have to. God forgives us when he doesn't have to because he's trying to lead us to something better. He's trying to give us something better and too often we settle for it because we sanitize it, because we we construe it as kind of a, a difference of opinion when it comes to trusting and obeying God. Well, God wants me to do this, but you know, I'm not sure I'm gonna buy into that, so I'm gonna do my own thing. We, you know, God and I, we just have a difference of opinion. No, partial obedience is still disobedience. And there are consequences for that. And ultimately, God has to judge evil and he has to judge sin. Otherwise, he would not be God and he would not be good. Ultimately, he has to judge evil and put an end to it. And so 10 times the people have wronged him and he has put up with it and put up with it and put up with it. But now, as a consequence of what they've done, they are not going to get to enter the promised land. And what's so sad about that is that no one wanted them to have that promised land more than God. You see, God wants to bless us by us trusting and obeying him. We receive his blessing by trusting and obeying him. God's heart is to bless. And the problem is, we don't believe it. Just like the people we're not sure we buy into that. And yet, that's the very heart of God. No one wants to bless us more than this amazing God does. So, will you let him bless you today? For some of you, for him to bless you, for you to trust and obey him, starts with you entering his family, being adopted into his family through grace. It's not something you earn. It's not about being a better person. It's about being a new person. It's about receiving God into your life. It's about receiving him into your life through the spirit of Jesus Christ. Jesus died on a cross, was buried and rose to new life in order to give you life, in order to give you right relationship with him and the heavenly father through his power and his presence, his Holy Spirit coming into your life. Have you made that defining moment decision to allow God to bless your life by blessing you with himself? It doesn't just happen. You have to choose to receive him into your life. Some of you are missing out on the blessing of God because you're not trusting and obeying him and you know you're not. And yet he wants to bless you. So, Will you choose to trust and obey him? Whatever he's putting his finger on on your life this morning, will you choose to trust him with that? Will you choose to obey him with that? And will you choose to do those things even when it makes no sense? 
even when it's difficult, even when the odds are against you, even when you don't feel like it. Because if you will, he will bless you. And some of you, boy, fairly speaking, probably all of us have been blessed by God. Will you let him bless you more? Would you ask God to bless your life even more this morning? Because that's what he wants to do, is he wants to bless you. So it's Father's Day. And there couldn't be a better day for us to be talking about our Heavenly Father, his character, the kind of God he is, how faithful he is, how he keeps his word and his promises. And you know, one of the things I miss most about my dad is his presence. I talked about this in my Facebook sermon preview this week. But this picture that you see on your screen was when Jamie and I were moving from the very first house we had to another house across town. And in this season of life, we had a really young family. We had two little kids. There are two years between each of our kids. So we had two little kids and Jamie was pregnant with our third. And life was very consuming and very full. And I'll tell you, if you ever want to really know how much stuff you really have, move it. Move it from an apartment to another apartment or move it from an apartment to a house or move it from one place to another. It's always amazing how much stuff you discover you really have when you have to move. And in this case, the way the closing of our house worked and all that stuff, we had to move in the middle of the week. And literally none of my friends and no one was available to help us move. I had a pregnant wife with two little kids and a 24-foot moving truck, as you can see from the picture there, and two pickups worth of stuff that had to be loaded up. And so who did I call? Who did I know would be there and help? My dad. This picture was taken after we had moved all of our stuff into those three vehicles. I miss my dad. And he's, he's gone now. He's with the Lord, but, but he's gone. But the assurance that you and I have is this heavenly dad will never leave us. Sometimes we forget he's there. Sometimes we have this spiritual amnesia that comes over us just like the people did where we forget what he's done, what he's promised, and the reality that the Lord is near. He's with us. And so my encouragement to you this morning, when we rightfully honor the earthly fathers in our lives, is for you to honor your heavenly father as well by trusting and obeying him, by choosing to believe him. And so as the worship team comes now and as we prepare to respond once again in music worship, once again, think about these words that we're singing this unchanging God, this God who never leaves, this God who's always faithful, this God who always does what he says he will do and who wants to bless your life and mine. So will you let him? Will you let him bless your life? Let's, let's sing together. And he is the God who never lets go of us. He is the God who is near. He is the God who is present. He is the God who always keeps his promises. He is the God who always does what he says he will do. And the most important decision you will ever make in your life is to receive this amazing God into your life through right relationship 
with Jesus Christ. We would love to help you to do that. As our service ends this morning, we will have um, a slide that will come up that will tell you how to get into our Zoom prayer room. We have a number of folks there who would love to pray with you. And my friends, all of us have giants that we are doing battle with in our lives. All of us have those things that we fear. And you don't have to walk that path alone. We would love to pray for you. We want to welcome you into that prayer room as well. And because God is the God who never lets go, he is the God who wants to bless us. And so I would like to pray a blessing over you as we prepare now to go into the rest of our day and the rest of our week. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face to you and give you peace. Happy Father's Day to all of our dads and for all of us. Let's now go and live for him. Thank you for joining us for Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church here in Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to follow us online, please go to gracecc.net. That's gracecc.net.